Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. Simply Scary Podcast, Season 1, Episode 12. I'm the Crypt Keeper and your Master of Ceremonies, G.M. Danielson. Movies like Arrival, Contact, and E.T. attempt to convince us that our first meeting with extraterrestrial beings will be a cerebral, enlightening experience. They assure us that we have much to learn from each other and that it will be an encounter between conscious, sentient, and benevolent minds. However, other films like Men in Black or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy paint a positively heartwarming, humorous picture, implying our interactions will eventually become routine. Even the more menacing movies, like Independence Day or Alien, attempt to assuage our fears by showing us 
thrilling adventures coming from our encounters. The truth is out there, Agent Scully, and we have that truth. That it will be more a cause for dread when cosmic pilgrims reach our new world shores and emerge from the dark sky. Let's meet the first of our otherworldly horrors from the stars. In this saga, we meet a young couple as they pass the time near their old school. He wants to reminisce, but she has memories that make it unbearable for her to revisit the past. But if she wants to continue her life with him, she will need him to realize the truth and remember it too. Olivia Steele gives full disclosure of author Kelsey Donald's story, Forget Me Not. It was another beautiful day. The sun shone brightly overhead as I lay on the cool, crisp grass, staring up at the blue sky. Blue flowers speckled the hill, swaying in the soft breeze. Nothing made me happier than sitting on the hill with Aaron, watching the clouds in the city below. That one looks like a flower, Aaron said, pointing up at the clouds. I see a heart, and a seashell. I wondered what the clouds looked like on the day we first kissed, Aaron mused. A flicker. I frowned. I think it was raining that day. Aaron lazily rolled on his side and faced me. He smiled. No, Mal. It was beautiful. Heart clouds, dark clouds, swirling strings of clouds. He was rambling. I sat up and rubbed my forehead. Flashes. Sounds and pictures. You're right, I said. It wasn't raining then. It rained the last time we kissed. The day we broke up. Broke up? We never broke up. Aaron traced circles in the air with his fingers and sighed happily. The sun was blinding now. I squinted my eyes against the glare. It was getting painful, boring through my eyes into my skull. I collapsed on the hill. Memories flooding in like a bursting dam. This isn't right. We did break up, I insisted through gritted teeth. I remember now. You left me in the rain. I ran home. Mom had the news on. That was the day of the first sighting. Sighting of what? What am I missing? I raised a hand to shield my eyes from the sun. Dust billowed up around me and the soft cushion of grass now felt dry and gritty. It was the day... The day, a final snap, everything falls into place. The day they arrived. A blink and my vision cleared. Everything cleared as the fog lifted from the crevices in my mind. I kept my hand in front of my eyes as the sun glared down at me. No, it wasn't the sun. It was a searchlight overhead. The dust whipped into a frenzy as the craft circled above us. I froze. Who arrived, Maul? Aaron seemed unaware of the roaring aircraft above us. It was all I could do not to run screaming. I clamped my teeth down on my hand and tasted blood. 
Seconds seemed like hours. By unbelievable luck, the craft moved on, dipping behind the hill. I unclenched my jaw and rubbed my hand, gasping for breath. Aaron was rambling again. Blue sky, robin's egg blue, cornflower blue, cobalt, catet, and sapphire. I got to my feet. We were on the hill behind the school, although it looked very different than I remembered. It had been our meeting place, back when we were dating, that is. Aaron and I were together for most of junior year, until the week before finals. We walked home in the rain, and by the time I reached my front door, we were no longer a couple. I can't say I didn't see it coming, but I was hurt nonetheless. I didn't have time to grieve, however, because that was the night of the first sighting. Ships appeared in the skies and the next stayed over. We thought it was a prank. Even the newscasters joked about the strange objects. They hovered for the next two days as experts flew in to try to identify the crafts. It soon became clear. These ships were not of this world. Then, the next thing we knew, videos of death and destruction were broadcast across the airwaves. Human-sized machines, at least they looked like machines, had deployed from the ships and attacked the cities below. It felt like a bad dream, nothing more. It's easy to ignore a problem when it's only visible on a screen. Plus, I, I had to study for finals. But then, smoke appeared in the distance. And soon after, the ships arrived overhead. Many fled the city. I thought my family would too, but when I ran home from school, scared and out of breath, I saw that my parents had evacuated without me. I hid in my room as I heard the sounds of artillery in the distance. The last thing I remembered was the loud splintering of wood as my door broke down, and the sharp tick, tick, tick of machinery as it approached my hiding place. Then, blurred images, too weak to be actual memories. I went to school, shopped at the mall, and spent time on the hill with Aaron. Happy memories. Fake memories. The sun was always shining, the neighbors always friendly. Aaron and I were still in love. Any thought of our breakup, our fights, was gone. Now, standing on the hill, I had a good view of the city. They barely recognized it. Buildings lay in ruins and trails of smoke rose in the distance. The nearest building was the school, and I could see a huge chunk of concrete missing from the side of the gymnasium. I coughed, trying to get the acrid taste of smoke out of my lungs. Sit with me, Mallory, Aaron said. He was still lying face up on the hill. I could see now that the hillside was barren. Almost all traces of its lush green grass were gone. How long had it been since the invasion? Aaron didn't look too great. His clothes were ragged and dirty and his dark hair was matted. It looked like he'd still been shaving every day, but I cringed as I saw red scratches down his face and neck. I took inventory of myself and realized I wasn't in much better condition. My stomach ached. I probably hadn't been eating well. I rifled through false memories. Every day I went to school, and every day I ate in the cafeteria. There must be food in there. 
I started down the hill, looking over my shoulder, hoping to see no machines lurking around. I glanced back at Aaron. He was staring at the sky again. I raised my eyes. A reddish haze hung in the air. I almost wish I could see the lovely false skies again instead of this harsh reality. Aaron whistled a carefree tune, and I bit my lip, wondering if I should really just leave him there. After all, he'd left me first. I sighed. Come on, Aaron. I grabbed his hand and led him down the hill towards the school. The school hallways were dim and smelled of mold. Aaron and I crept past the abandoned classrooms and the rows upon rows of lockers. While I crept, Aaron walked confidently, without a care in the world. In here, I whispered as we arrived at the cafeteria. The stench was overwhelming. I pushed through the double doors, covering my mouth with the neck of my t-shirt. A swarm of flies hovered around the food bar. Stepping closer, I could see trays full of blackened, slimy food. I wasn't even sure what used to be in those trays. Have I been eating that all this time? Aaron reached out to grab a handful of what might have been peas once. I slapped his hand away. A half-empty rack of potato chips stood in a corner, so I grabbed two bags and gave one to Aaron. That would have to hold us over for now. Noises in the hallway. Footsteps. I plastered myself against the wall, trying to motion for Aaron to duck out of sight. No luck. But the footsteps continued down the hall, and I gathered enough courage to peek through the crack in the door. Three kids, who I recognized as freshmen, strolled past, their footsteps echoing in the empty corridor. They didn't notice me as they happily chattered to one another. One was barefoot, with infected blisters covering her feet. Another's left arm was covered in scorch marks, the singed fabric of his shirt sticking to the burned flesh. The three students turned into an empty classroom, and I took that opportunity to exit the cafeteria, with Aaron in tow. As we passed the gym, I heard more sounds. The door was propped open, and inside I saw my old gym teacher, Mrs. Miller. She was holding what looked like a rotten melon, and I watched in fascinated horror as she stood before the basketball hoop, aimed her shot, and threw. The melon splattered against the backboard, sending putrid clumps of fruit and seeds spraying across the room. Mrs. Miller looked to her left, then her right, and clapped enthusiastically. Good pass, Mike, she said to no one in particular. Then she met my eyes. I ducked out of sight and darted toward the exit as I heard her voice echo behind me. You're just in time. We're picking teams. Aaron caught up to me and reached for my hand as I swung the front doors open, stepping out into the red, hazy world. I brushed his hand away. I should ditch him, I thought. But I couldn't bring myself to send this sad, brainwashed ex of mine away. Call me sentimental, if you will. A can clattered to the floor, and I willed myself not to panic. We were in a small grocery store on Lexington, stocking up on supplies. I didn't have much of a plan yet, but I figured we might as well gather enough food to leave the city. There were machines still patrolling the streets. I'd seen three on our way here. Luckily, I'd been able to hide each time, pulling Aaron along with me. 
I didn't know how long my luck would hold out. I picked up the can and glanced around. No one seemed to notice the clamor, although there were at least five brainwashed people roaming the store. It creeped me out. They walked like they were in a daze, performing their usual tasks as they went about their day, unaware that their world had been flipped upside down. I shuddered to think that I'd been like that too. What made me snap out of it? The floor creaked behind me and I jumped. Spinning around, I saw it was a middle-aged man wandering through the aisles. I took a deep breath and steadied myself, trying to calm my pounding heart. You're free, aren't you? The man said. I looked at him warily. Yeah, I'm talking to you, he said. His voice was clear and steady, low, but not a whisper. You're not brainwashed like the rest of them, are you? Relief flooded through me. I'm not alone. For the first time since I woke up on the hill, my face broke into a smile. Yes! I thought it was just me, I whispered. Must have just snapped out of it, have you? Before I could answer, he continued. You couldn't have lasted this long otherwise. The way you're acting. What do you mean? Sneaking around, jumping at every sound. You stand out like a sore thumb. You need to blend in with the brain cases, or they'll catch you and turn you back into one. Keeps you from fighting back. I nodded. He seemed to know what he was talking about. Are there more of you? A few. Some, like me, have been free since the beginning. They never got to us. Others, like you, snap out of it after a while. How? I'm not even sure what made me come to. To be honest, we're not quite sure. Some think a memory slips through the cracks, one that clashes with the bright, happy world you're trapped in, and some think it's completely random. I thought about that for a minute. I'd been entertaining dreams of finding my friends and family, depending on if I forgave my parents for abandoning me and freeing them from this illusion. I at least had to save Aaron. I couldn't keep dragging him around with me. But if it was random, what chance did I have of saving them? I want to come with you, I said to the man. That should be my first step, finding others like me. Others who could help me. Aaron rounded the corner. He was holding a box of cereal and a beach umbrella. I'm ready, Maul, he said. The man pointed at Aaron. Is that brain case with you? Yeah. No the man said, shaking his head. If you want to come back with me, you have to ditch your friend here. He'll compromise our position. He's not my friend, I said. I sighed and shook my head. But I can't leave him here. The man tugged at his thinning hair. Sorry, kid. Wish I could help. He started making his way to the door. I wanted to run after him, and I looked back and forth from Aaron to the man. Wait, the man turned around at the door. He pursed his lips as if he were making a difficult decision. I'll tell you what, he said. Meet me at the clock tower on Oak and Fifth tomorrow. Three o'clock in the afternoon, exactly. No brain cases or no deal. Thank you, I whispered. He gave me an encouraging smile. I believe that you can break people out of the spell. You just have to try hard enough. 
The door tinkled as the man exited the store. My mind raced. Save Aaron. Meet at the clock tower. Don't. Get. Caught. All right, Aaron, I said with new determination. We have work to do. I heard it before I saw it. The sharp, steady clicking of metal against sidewalk. A machine, a jagged assortment of black metal shapes, advanced toward us on spindly appendages. I fought against the instinct to flee, remembering what the man, the one who'd been free, had told me yesterday. You just need to blend in. The machine was just over a block away. Between us, an older gentleman ambled out of an alleyway. He was holding a leash, dragging something behind him. I gasped when I saw it was the long-dead corpse of a small dog. The man took no notice of the machine, even when it approached him and lingered by his side. I couldn't be sure, but it looked like the machine was inspecting him, watching for any unexpected reaction. The man reached down to pet the decaying dog. My stomach churned as I saw a patch of fur slew right off the corpse and fall to the ground. Good boy, the man said. The machine seemed satisfied and continued on its course towards Aaron and me. Aaron didn't take notice as it hovered around him, but I did. My heart raced and I broke out into a cold sweat. The machine must have decided Aaron was no threat because after a brief look at him, it turned on me next. For a second, I stood completely still. It took me a moment to realize that that was just as suspicious as running, so I willed myself to move forward, one foot after the other. Aaron was strolling ahead, and I matched my footsteps to his. The machine followed. A bead of sweat ran down my face, but I kept my face passive, My eyes, straight ahead. Please, let this work. Please, let this work. Finally, the machine moved on, making its way down the quiet street. Once the sounds of the machine faded away in the distance, I grabbed Aaron's arm. We were close. We crossed the street, and I led him around the side of the building, into the shade of a large marquee. A few of the letters had fallen off, but I knew what the sign said. Morning Star Cinemas. There were others like us, the man had said, others who were free from the illusion brought on by the machines. I could join them, but I couldn't bring Aaron. Not unless he was freed. I thought I could snap him out of it if I could only get him to realize the bright, happy world he saw was a lie. If I could just unlock an unhappy memory, I thought... I could bring the lie crashing down. I had until three o'clock to free Aaron and meet the others at the clock tower. Do you remember this place? I asked. Aaron idly glanced up. Are we going to the movies? Yep, we're going to the movies. It was dark inside the theater, and I was glad I brought a flashlight from the store. The lobby looked eerie the beam of light glancing off the glass sides of the popcorn maker in the back of the room. I made my way down the dark hallway and crept into the nearest theater. Aaron followed. There was a hole in the ceiling. I had no idea if it was caused by the machines or by our own forces, but it let a welcome ray of light into the room. I could see the hazy red sky above. As we entered the theater, 
I heard a low muttering coming from the seats. Half a dozen people sat in the rows of seats, their vacant expressions trained at the empty screen. A quiet laugh echoed through the room, multiplying as each of the audience joined in. I shuddered at the eerie chorus. That's my favorite part, one person said, and I could only imagine what illusion-induced film was playing in his mind. Aaron and I took a seat in the back of the theater, where we'd always sat on our dates. I was thinking of one night in particular, so I sat to his right, just the way it'd been. Do you remember when we came here the night before homecoming? Shh, you're missing the previews. I ignored him. The movie we were going to see sold out, so we chose another. I shifted in my seat so I was facing Aaron. He wouldn't meet my eyes, he just stared ahead at the screen with an empty smile on his face. That was the only time I'd seen you cry, I said. It was just a movie, sure. But I know you felt something. Something sad and hurtful. Aaron laughed. <laughs> Watch this part, Mallory, it's great! Aaron, please, you have to remember. I searched for his face for the slightest flicker, a sign that something real made it past the illusion. Just one sad memory, that's all I needed. Aaron chuckled louder, and it rippled through the rest of the audience. I put my hands over my ears. There had to be another way, a worse memory. You must remember this, I said. We were in Aaron's backyard. There was a swing set and a trampoline, though Aaron probably hadn't used them in over a decade. The trampoline was broken, its once taut cloth surface lay tattered on the ground. I wasn't sure if that was from the machine's destruction, or if it had been like that for some time. Aaron stepped inside the trampoline's metal frame and began to jump on the bare dirt below. You fell off the trampoline and broke your arm when you were six. I reminded him. You told me it was the worst pain you'd ever felt. Jump with me, he said. I'm soaring so high. Small plumes of dust rose where his feet hit the ground with dull thuds. I shook my head in frustration. I wasn't getting through. With a glance at my watch, my heart sank. It was almost two in the afternoon. I had an hour to snap Aaron out of it and arrive at the clock tower, or go myself and leave him. Could I bring myself to leave him? It was a wonder any of us had survived so long in this state of childlike wonder. I didn't have faith he'd last much longer. There was one memory I'd been avoiding. Maybe because it was much worse for me than Aaron. For all I knew, it was a happy memory for him. But I was out of time. I had to try. As we neared the familiar street corner, I'd broke into a run. I stopped when I reached the street lamp, panting for breath. My throat burned and my mind filled with the painful memory of that day. It was raining. Aaron caught up, looking puzzled at my words. Before he could respond, I continued. We were walking home from school, like we always did. We had been fighting again, worse than usual. I thought you'd leave and go home by yourself, but there you were, waiting for me. Aaron yawned. I'm tired. Can we go home? I grabbed him by the shoulders. You have to remember this. You stopped right here on this corner. It was pouring by then. 
You told me you didn't want to speak to me anymore, how you couldn't stand to even look at me. It was over, you said. It had been over for a long time. I fought back tears as the terrible memories, the ones I'd blocked myself with no help from the illusion, came rushing back. The fighting, the screaming, the manipulating. Neither one of us had been faithful, but neither one of us deserved it. Aaron had broken up with me, but I pushed him to it. I didn't have the guts to do it myself. You said you hated me, I was shouting now. And then you kissed me! How dare you not remember that? A single raindrop fell from the sky and landed on my cheek. I looked up, just as the skies opened up and water fell from the heavens. Just perfect. But when I looked back, Aaron's face was wet, and not from rain. I cautiously leaned forward, my heart pounding, and kissed him. How dare you not remember that? The sound of machines drawing near. The noise mingled with the sudden onslaught of rain, but I didn't pay any notice. Mallory? Aaron's voice was barely a whisper. What's going on? It worked! He looked so lost, and for a moment, every awful emotion I had been feeling was wiped clean. The clatter of machinery grew louder. I saw Aaron's eyes grow wide, and I realized there was no time to explain, no time to convince him to stay calm and stay free. Wait until you can't see me anymore, and then go to the clock tower. There will be friends there to help you, I whispered in his ear. I'm sorry. I think he said something in return, but I was already running down the street. I blew past the machine and heard a mechanical whir as it picked up speed and followed me. I ran faster than I ever had before and thought, maybe I'll actually get out of this one. That thought vanished as I turned a corner and nearly crashed headfirst into two other machines waiting for me. Can't win them all. The grass felt soft against my back as I lay on the hill behind school. Blue flowers dotted the pristine landscape. Pretty clouds soared overhead and I named their shapes aloud. There was no one to hear me, of course, but why should that stop me? It was another beautiful day. Most of us can relate to a feeling of uncertainty as to whether or not the world around us is real. If you learn the truth, though, it may be best to continue on as if everything were normal, or the eponymous they may come for you as well. Hey, 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 GM, this just came in over the wire. Wait, wait. Attention, everyone. Achtung, Vinyamanyi. We have an incoming transmission. And it is our duty to share, so don't go away. We will return. And when we do, we'll see what returns with us. Go to simplyscarypodcast.com
Click on the About tab at the top of the page, and you'll get all the information you need to know about all the talents here on the Simply Scary Podcast. And now, back to our show. Greetings in over four million forms of communication. Now that the salutations are done, it is time for us to share a tale they would rather you not hear. Oh, really? Now you know perfectly well who they are. In our final story, a Russian space mission is in extreme danger and the consequences will extend far beyond the crew of the shuttle. This unfortunate turn will also reach the locals around the deepest freshwater lake in the world, Lake Baikal. Coincidentally, a scientific expedition comes to explore the lake, and our intrepid experts do what scientists seem to do best. Go exploring without any idea of what horrors await them. Executive producer of the Simply Scary podcast, zombie crypt keeper, and man of a thousand voices, Jesse Cornett, performs Tom Farr's Space. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And all the insects ceased in honor of the moon. Jack Kerouac, Lonesome Traveler. The trajectory's too high, too wide. Everything's gone wrong, and then some. Kazakov shouts at the mission console and gesticulates manically, as though command can actually see him. They've fired the retro rockets and successfully re-entered Earth's atmosphere, but the superheated air and hot atmospheric gases have destroyed the internal wing structure, and now everything else is coming apart. There's auxiliary data, and thermal stresses, and compressed atmosphere gases. But Dyatlov knows that that's not what's going to kill them. The empty vault of cosmic waste wasn't so empty after all. It's the thing outside, riding the temporal winds of space, and trailing phosphorescence like the trail of a comet. 
that's going to eliminate their map. The deep vacuum of intergalactic space renders the keening shrieks and anemic hisses silent, but he can still hear them echoing off the walls of his skull. He shudders at the thought of whatever dark abyssal womb could have birthed such an eldritch horror as the thing that's tearing at the mid-fuselage and clawing at the side hatch. There's a sickly flash of bluish-purple at the overhead windows, and even though he can't hear them, he can feel the dozens of sharp, chitinous limbs tap-tap-tapping on the roof. Something bumps against the side of his head. It's Kazakov's graduation photo, and the kid looks even younger than he does now, except that in the photograph, Kazakov's hair is cropped, and there isn't a hint of a beard in sight. Beyond the curved windows of the crew compartment, all of the Earth is a toy. A lonely globe, half-shaded in a library window. All land, and water, and light, and dark, and more untraveled places than Dyatlov has hairs on his head. A terrible vibration shudders through everything, and he imagines the ablative heat shielding being peeled away, like the lid of a can of sardines gaining speed now, losing altitude. Never a good combination. That not-so-distant Earth stares unblinkingly, a cosmic eye of cyclopean proportions. Dyatlov wonders how the Vedernikov looks, plummeting through the cosmic vastness, leaving a twisted tail of shed debris in its wake. Then he thinks about what it is that's tearing the shuttle apart. He glimpses something at the starboard window that's broad and flat and segmented and could be a head, except there's no eyes and no mouth and no antenna. Just rigid arrangements of jagged mandibles glistening the color of rotten teeth. Then it's gone and the 1.3-inch-thick optical pane of fused aluminum silica glass is spider-webbed with cracks. Kazakov has abandoned the mission console and is struggling into his extravehicular mobility unit spacesuit. It incorporates a built-in life support system in the backpack which won't save him from burning up or being torn apart. They won't make it. But there's another way, a quicker way. Dyatlov unfolds the stock of the triple-barreled survival gun, the same model that's been on board every Soviet spacecraft in history. It's loaded with rifle bullets. Dyatlov calls to Kazakov, and when the younger man turns with one leg still hanging out of his spacesuit, he shoots him in the forehead. Dyatlov's teeth clack off the gun's cold metal barrel as he jams it against the roof of his mouth. He wraps his left hand around the stock and one finger of his right hand around the trigger. He can taste gun oil dripping behind his tongue. It's the only way. His eyes find the thing looming in the starboard window. Its segmented coils glisten the bluish gray of a man's intestines. He was wrong. There is a mouth. Dyatlov's finger squeezes the trigger at the exact moment two huge segmented forcepules tear through the Vedernikov, and the ravenous dark rushes inside.
The water was black and choppy and slapped and sloshed against the side of the tiny wooden rowboat. The boy gripped the slippery wood as the old man bent his crooked spine to the oars. The last flickering of the waning sunset skirted a troubled sky. Dark panes of glass glinted along the shoreline, painted boards warped and weathered and bathed in dusky gray half-light. The boy trailed his hand in the rowboat's chilly wake, but didn't leave the hand in the black water for all too long. He gazed up at the large pale moon and wondered why it was so empty, then down at the other moon rippling and floating on the water. The boy blinked, took a sharp breath of raw and blistering air. He leaned over and tugged at one of the old man's sleeves. The boy pointed to the spot below the surface where they'd seen the leggy snake. The old man unhooked the lantern from its pole and shone it where the boy was pointing. The water there gaped black and empty like an open grave. Quickly, the boy explained what it was that he'd seen. The old man's pinched face tightened, his eyes glimmering dully in their nests of wrinkles. He said, and hooked the lantern back on its pole and returned to the oars. Don't tell your grandmother. The boy shivered. He knew that the shiny metal in the lake helped to put food on the table, and he was grateful to God for sending it. But he hated coming out here so close to full dark. He thought that the old man did too, because now... He was rowing faster. The boy kept his hands out of the water until he helped the old man drag the boat up onto the stony beach. The lake was thick with gathering dusk. Blackness so deep it hurt the boy's eyes. He wound in the excess rope and fed the looped end through the center eye of the cleat at the rear of the boat. He turned for a final sight of the far shore, such as he could make out. And that was when he heard the soft splashing. No, not splashing. More like thrashing. And it was coming closer. The boy knew that there were seals in the lake because he'd seen them for himself, and the old man had told him that they were being hunted whenever they came on shore. But this didn't sound like a seal. The boy stared at the impossibly dark space between the shores and the splashing that wasn't quite splashing continued. It was, he realized, the sound of a body slipping into the water or slipping out of it. A lot of bodies, too. Or one very long one. A leggy one. When the stones off to his right began to skitter and tinkle and whisper over one another, the boy's whole body went cold, and then he was off up the shore at a dead run, away from whatever was moving by the water, away from the splashing and the scuttling and the stealthy tap-tap-tapping of what sounded like hundreds of tiny hammers chipping away at the dark. One-fifth of all the fresh water on the surface of the world... Hal lighted another cigarette. No way. No way. Truth. 
5,500 cubic miles of unfrozen fresh water. Big rivers and small rivers and streams and estuaries and tributaries and glaciated headwater. More than 300 finish up right here. Brandy looked out across the wind-roiled water. An endless black abyss rising and falling and swelling as though it were the maw of some great beast. Chewing and chewing and just about ready to spit something out. The sheer pressure of the water contained within the colossal structural hollow formed by the surrounding mountains was, in itself, almost utterly overwhelming. Oldest freshwater lake on Earth, Hal continued, casting his gaze over the water. Deepest, too. But don't ask me how deep, because I don't know. Maybe nobody knows. Subaqueous, in the extreme... Exactly. The old woman wrung her weathered hands in her lap, the wrinkles eroding the sun-darkened skin on her face, and cheeks deepened when she coughed. She spoke for a long time, and Anton translated. A long time ago, a boy lived by the lake. His name was Ithiandar. Anton frowned, puzzled. I think that's how it's pronounced in your English. Anyway, Ithiandar loved the lake and loved swimming in the water and diving down below the surface. But one day, a monster from the deepest deep reached out and touched Ithiandar. And the boy became very ill. Anton turned to the woman and snapped something in Russian. She shook her head, scratched at the swollen, lit red lumps on her wrists and the inflamed backs of her hands. Anton continued. To... To save the boy's life, his father instructed the hospital to replace young Ithiander's lungs with the gills of a shark. But as the seasons withered and died, Ithiander became less and less comfortable on land until eventually he went to live in the lake. He watches over fishermen because his father was one. It keeps, it keeps them safe from storms and monsters and such. Brandy laughed and shook her head and said, Even in your folklore, the men are sexist jackasses. Hal laughed at that. <laughs> and Anton bellowed like an ox. And the old woman cackled right along with them. Hal thanked her, and Brandy thanked her, and then Anton shooed her away inside, and they advanced down the old porch's creaky wooden steps. Brandy stopped and turned her gaze up as the three of them made their way down the rutted, unpaved road. Like a grubby pane of glass, the sky was gray, and so were the rain clouds. She snuggled deeper into her yellow and orange ski parka and hurried to catch up to where Hal and Anton were leaving the road. 
They approached an old and dilapidated one-story building, yellow-colored, wood-stained with blotches of reddish-brown, all warped angular plank and corroded shingle. Wooden crates stacked against a slouching porch, everything speckled with parasitic fungal patches, the color of half-picked scabs, and maculated by slime-green lake scum. At the rear of the building, a crumbling brick dependency that could once have been an outhouse or a tool shed. They advanced upon the porch. Brandy fumbled the first couple of steps, slick and skewed as they were. The mildewed wood sighed and creaked. The air in the porch was thick, fusty and foul and fly-blown as an old dead dog bloating in a waterlogged basement. There was no door, only a rectangle of blackness yawning like a lidless coffin. Hal fiddled with the camera. Anton was muttering in Russian and worrying at a vile heap of filthy rags piled in one corner. There were more crates on the porch, primary colored plastic, old and faded, stacked two and three high, and each crate holding six glass canning jars, two rows of three. The jars were the type with squat, round bodies and screw-top lids, and looked surprisingly clean, incongruent with the otherwise abominable filth. What looked to be strands of kelp or weed bellowed in the tea-colored water that filled each jar to the brim. Curious, Brandy reached out one hand towards the closest crate. Nye, nye prikasiets, kenyemyo. The voice was wet and flimmy, the accent heavy. In the corner of the porch, the heap of rags stirred, and a face the color of curdled milk made itself known amongst the vile swaddling. Hal and Anton were both staring at her. Hal looked worried. Anton, amused. Had she screamed? The man in rags suddenly doubled over, racked by a rattling fit of coughing. Wet, ragged, like water on the lung. Anton made the introductions while Hal poked all about the porch, and Brandy fumbled a notepad from her rucksack. The bureau pin tucked in the black spiral binding wouldn't write and the next one was red. She hated writing in red, so she put the pen and the notebook back in her bag and took out her digital voice recorder. Ready. Want me to record, too? No, it's okay. Okay. When they were finished, Anton wheeled the old man inside. The chair's wheels looked as though they had come from a dog cart, and the spokes were rusted and the whole thing creaked and groaned as it rolled over the threshold. Brandy and Hal exchanged uneasy glances and turned to regard the crates and the jars. I didn't notice the legs before, Brandy whispered. Hal had gone to watch the sun fall from the sky. Anton was eating. Brandy had taken the opportunity to transcribe the interview with the man in the wheelchair. Headphones in. She burrowed into her hispar combi down, with her notepad resting on her thighs, and a bureau in her hand. A blue one. The first time was when he was young, uh, out fishing on the lake with his grandpapa. Uh, 
he was, he says it uh, was swimming in the moon and that it was longer than a mountain. It moved like a snake, but it had a thousand legs. It came from the sky. God sent it to earth in a pillar of fire, like a spear from heaven. He won't tell me what that means. Uh, he saw it next that summer, swimming in the lake. Smooth bluish gray coils, the color of ice under a cloudy sky. He says, uh, mm. he says that's when he first realized that there was more than one, because the coils were too far apart. But he hasn't seen any of them swimming for years. They crawl on the bottom of the lake now. Uh, that's what he thinks. They crawl in the deepest deep. And that's why he catches the little ones. Because he knows what happens when they get big. The lake lay sullen and secular as a stained glass window painted black. The sun had almost completely slipped behind the jagged peaks of the distant mountains, and only faint splinters of light remained. Scoters and gulls, and maybe even a sea eagle flitted through the shadows, tiny black V-shapes spiraling in flashes of sunset. In the gathering gloom on the distant shore, a glint of gold, a blade of polished sunlight. Hal blinked, and when he looked again, nothing was visible there, save for the ever-deepening dusk. Brandy was putting her notepad away in her rucksack when Hal pulled back the tent flap and ducked through the low opening. One boot on and one boot off, he took off the other boot and left both boots under the small awning at the front of the tent, then zipped the flap back up and crawled into his Hispar 500 down. His sleeping bag was burnt orange. Brandy's was blue. They sat in silence for a few minutes, allowing the cold that had followed Hal inside to dissipate. Their breath fogged in the air. Eventually, Brandy said, Where's Anton? <laughs> Drinking. There's a surprise. He's a good guy, Brand. He's also Russian. <laughs> she giggled a little at that. Did... Did you find a boat in the end? Um, I found something wooden with oars that aren't too badly cracked. It'll do. Okay. Um, what do you think the pillar of fire was, Brand? Not a spear from heaven. <laughs> no, I guess not. You can see the aurora borealis here in the spring and autumn equinoxes. But you don't think that's what it was? No, I don't. I don't think it's what any of them were. Brandy unzipped her rucksack 
and took out a black leather notebook hiding amidst her battalion of notepads. She tossed it to Hal. His gloved hands proved barely dexterous enough to catch it. Tucked between the pages, yellowed and not-so-yellowed newspaper clippings, and torn out pages from books, and handwritten notes on yellow legal pad paper. From the Siberian Times, 30th of March, 1983. Aliens underwater at world's deepest lake. Military divers encounter extraterrestrial swimmers at depth of 50 meters. They had too many limbs to be human, one source claims. From the Moscow Times, 27th of October, 1974. Body of dead alien found in Buryation Lake. Experts discount possibility of a hoax. This is the real thing, former KGB scientist declares. From the London Times, 14th of April, 1963. UFOs seen again at Angara River. Witness describes huge spider-like craft, says, My God, it was terrifying. From the Scottish Herald, 10th of October, 1989. 50-foot monster sighted in Russian lake. Rare sighting sends tourists fleeing in terror. From the Wall Street Journal, 27th of July, 1998. Cold War diary describes huge UFO crash in 1953. Scientists baffled as to possible identity of enormous ring craft of tremendous size. From the Athens Messenger, 13th of October, 2004. Giant Chilopoda could inhabit other planets. Entomologist denounces ideas of little green men, declares the square cube law flawed. Evolutionary pressure will force gigantic arthropod growth, she declares. Hal flicked through the rest of the notebook, stopping at pages to which photographs had been taped. A grainy black and white enlarged photo of a disc-shaped object against a hazy patch of sky. A glossy and inexpensive-looking color Polaroid of what could be a terribly thin chimpanzee loping between trees. A pinkish smudge of hand framing a sleek gray shape blurring across a roiling body of water. A claustrophobically pitch-black Polaroid with a flashlit foreground. In one corner of the box-like space, a pale chalky yellow face with strange pebbled skin and huge expressionless almond-shaped eyes black as the Polaroid's background. This last image unnerved Hal more than he cared to admit. The vague rumor of a night-blackened window and a landscape of bedroom furniture in the background conjured, well, extremely unpleasant notions of where the photograph had been taken, and he closed the notebook and tossed it back to Brandy. So you're really into all this, huh? And here was me thinking this was all just a good excuse to blow scholarship money and explore the frozen tundra with the UK's most handsome indie filmmaker. <laughs> Brandy shook her head. There's something out there, Hal. I just know there is. <laughs> the truth is out there, Scully. You're hilarious. I'm going to sleep. You should too. You've got a lot of rowing to do tomorrow. Good night. Rowing. Brilliant. Something woke Hal in the early hours. A noise? He held his breath until he could hear the blood squeaking through his head. But the night held its breath, too, and remained treacherously silent.
Hal let out a soundless sigh and stared at the nylon wall, listening to the soft, even exhalations of Brandy's sleep. She seemed impossibly distant now, in the pit-dark tent. He had almost drifted back off to sleep when he heard it, a faint scuffling somewhere beyond the tent flap. He froze, trapped his breath. Muffled sobs, stones crunching underfoot, splashing that didn't quite sound right, somehow. Then, silence. When Brandy woke the next morning, the membranous nylon roof of the tent was aglow with the weak light of dawn. Everything was cold, and the tent flap was half unzipped. Hal's boots were gone from beneath the awning, but she could hear his voice somewhere, almost out of earshot, like a radio left on in a distant room of a large and empty house. The glow of dawn had fled the sky and rain clouds were rolling in above the distant mountains when she finally emerged from the tent. Tiny droplets of water pinpricked her exposed face and the backs of her hands. She pulled on her gloves as she walked down the rough strip of scrub to the stony shore where Hal and Anton stood beside a narrow spine of rock that jutted out into the lake. The trailing end of her scarf snapped in the wind and her hair billowed out behind her as a sudden gust of wind blasted across the flat surface of the lake. All in all, the weather seemed as nervous as she was. Good Lord, Brandy said when she reached the two men. Somebody had a rough night. Anton was the power of a corpse, except for an angry red cyst-like swelling just below his left eye. He tried to speak, but was interrupted by a fit of violent coughing that caused his whole body to jerk and shudder. Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh. Pardon me. He slumped back down and was promptly racked by further coughing before he could properly regain his breath. His breathing was sodden and ragged, as though each exhalation was being forced through a sheet of humectant tissue paper. Nearby, a wooden rowboat that looked about as seaworthy as a bucket perforated with holes was tethered to a pole driven into the shale. Hal was scowling furiously at the bobbling vessel, his features dark. Anton, Brandy said, turning to the Russian. Is this, well... Safe? Anton sharpened up and lifted his gaze. His eyes were alarmingly bloodshot. It will do for two, he said. I will hike the western shore. He pointed to a distant stretch of shoreline and signal you when I arrive. (coughs) There is something there you will need to see. And once that, wondered Hal, Anton shook his head. I will signal from western shore, he repeated, kneading his eyes with the heels of his palms. The back of one hand was swollen and inflamed, Brandy noticed. She watched him get up and march away straight-backed along the stony shore, pausing only to stand doubled over with his hands on his knees, coughing uncontrollably. Hal had been scrutinizing the rowboat, but now he was staring somewhere over her left shoulder. She turned her head, 
following his line of sight to the squalid skyline of plank and shingle following the curve of the lake. A knot of ragged figures had gathered at the mouth of the rutted trail leading down to the shore. Hal raised a hand, but the figures remained motionless. Well, good luck to you too, then, <laughs> he murmured, turning back to the boat. He stretched his arms and sighed. Let's get on with this, shall we? The lake was like a mirror painted black. Brief reflections of sunlight were still obtainable, but were almost immediately occulted by the watery shadows. Vague shapes moved slowly beneath the ebon surface, amorphous apparitions that seemed to drift closer and closer to the boat until the rhythmic slap of an oar shattered the surface and sent them scurrying for the depths. Luciferian witches, Hal recalled reading once, used plates of glass painted black to communicate with spirits and shades and to encourage demonic possession. He glanced back at Brandy, who had removed one glove to trail her hand in the water. Oldest freshwater lake on earth. Deepest, too. A true primordial abyss. He bent his back to the oars, half expecting at any moment for the water to bulge and swell, to disgorge some colossal cephalopodic creature with huge bulging eyes and great whipping tentacles. Some eldritch horror of a true Lovecraftian bent. So it was understandable when something slapped wetly against his shoulder that Hal lurched forward and almost capsized the boat. Jumpy? Brandy grinned, drying her hands on her jeans. Look, over there. Hal choked his galloping heart back down into his chest and looked around. A flash of gold, like sunlight reflecting off a stream. There again, a spiderweb glint of light between a pair of pale dead trees. Hal veered the boat towards the flint gray scimitar of shore rowing until the transom grated on the stone. Careful! Brandy cried. Hal ignored her. When she got out, he dragged the boat right up onto the shore, as there was no decent tether. Anton wasn't there. The trees were like ghosts, twisted and gnarled, and dead and gray. Dry, clattering branches raking a troubled sky shedding handfuls of fiery leaves. Anton! Anton! You there, mate? Nothing. Hal turned to Brandy, exasperated. I don't know, she said. I don't... There! Hal snapped his head around so quickly that pain lanced down his neck. He caught a flash of gold out of the corner of his eye. What's he playing at? Anton! I guess he wants us to go in there. Brandy's teeth worried at her bottom lip. I'm not sure about this, Al. What, what if, what if it's not Anton? Of course it's him, Hal snapped. Then seeing the flash of hurt on Brandy's face, he said, <laughs> Whatever happened to playing a hunch? Scully. She chuckled. Oh, God. I guess you're right. Of course I am. 
He's just trying it on. Hal shook his head, sighed. <sighs> Bloody Russian sense of humor. Before they started out into the woods, Hal spared a final glance back over his shoulder at the rock-ribbed shoreline snaking away into the distance, at the blustery water slapping the stones. The far shore was shrouded in mist, the black water unending, a successatory sheet of jagged motion. They were deep in the woods, Hal leading, Brandy following, before he started to notice things. Damaged tree trunks, deep gouges and splintered wood. Huge, smooth troughs cut through the upheaved soil, flanked on either side by strange foot-wide diagonal marks in the ground. Things. The air was thick with a bitter, almond-like scent, a smell like cherry laurel, a smell like cyanide. The stillness was solemn and soundless, the atmosphere of wrongness almost palpable. A flash of white caught his periphery, concurrent with a barely audible rustling, like crumpled newspaper or someone climbing a ladder while wearing blue paper overalls. A sharp hiss, and then a muffled thud. Hal froze. Bren? Suddenly, he felt very, very cold. He didn't turn around, and there was no reply. Anton? Nothing. A slow, sodden step towards him. Another. Thud. 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 It's Robocop, he thought, and didn't know whether to laugh or scream or fall to his knees and sob, so instead he simply turned around. Beams of weak sunlight blinked between the trees, glinting on the ocular curve of a thick, gold-tinted visor. Standing less than four paces from him was a figure clad in a bulky white pressure suit, with convoluted rubber joints at its shoulders, elbows, wrists, hips, knees, and ankles. Silver rings at the wrists and neck, probably for attaching gloves and a helmet. The suit was torn and ripped and faded, and thick with dust and filth. Beyond the figure, Brandy lay motionless on the ground. Thud. Thud. The soil sucked at the pressure suit's clunky boots. Hal stared at himself in the golden blank of the astronaut's face. Thud. And that was when the great fallen tree straddling a nearby ditch began to move. A huge dorsoventrally flattened trunk raised itself from the ground. Smooth, segmented plates of chitin, the bluish-gray of frostbitten flesh, suspended in a cradle of long, sharp limbs. Hundreds of them. Thousands. Legs creaking. The endless, segmented monstrosity turned and lifted its broad, flat head clacking its huge force appeals with a sound like sledgehammers striking concrete. Giant kilopoda. Evolutionary pressure. Thud. The helmet's smooth golden curvature filled Hal's vision. His body was stone, his legs taken root in the soil. 
The smell of almonds and cherries and sickly sweet death choked his lungs. His breath fogged the visor's surface. Then the astronaut raised the visor and Hal was screaming. Unable to move even his little finger but screaming so loudly he could feel the muscles in his throat tearing. Revealed in the claustrophobic space within the hard plastic helmet, a writhing bolus of centipedes. Thousands of rigid sub-cylindrical shapes moving lazily, burrowing amongst one another, hinged bodies dry and creaking and twisting in the dusty light. Hal willed himself backwards, but before his body could even contemplate motion, the decaying palm of a molded, rubberized glove had closed about his jaw. The astronaut that was no longer an astronaut leaned in close. Desiccated skin clung like tattered rags to the vague suggestion of a skull long since hollowed out by a thousand burrowing centipedes. The gloved hand used its thumb and forefinger to force Hal's jaw open wide like a dog taking a pill. Only he wasn't a dog. And the sinuous form detaching itself from the sluggish mass of Kilopoda and slithering into his gaping mouth was not a pill. Crawling. He could feel it crawling down his throat. Feel his throat bulge with the centipede's chitinous rigidity. Razor-sharp legs pinpricked the roof of his mouth as the Kilopoda burrowed up into the fleshy softness there. Agony. Indescribable agony. The world blurred, sheeted in red. The invertebrate's forcipules flailed somewhere behind his eyes as it burrowed up into his skull. The Kilopoda uncoiled its body and he howled and vomited and shook as those cruel, barbed legs began to scrape at the bone of his skull. Brandy stares out of the plane's small window at the bleak gray landscape, flecked with dark bodies of water and studded with flinty gray crops of mountains. She sighs, involuntarily touches her bandaged head, the swelling around her eye socket. She's lucky that the three seal hunters found her when they did. There's no telling what Hal and Anton would have done otherwise. The sick sensation of betrayal runs bone deep and hurts more than anything. Suddenly, the scent of almonds filling her nostrils. Her stomach convulses, lurching wildly. She fumbles her seatbelt undone, apologizes to her vaguely irritated neighbor as she hurries to the box-like restroom. She locks the doors, falls to her knees, and vomits into the lidless toilet. She stands up and flushes the toilet and looks at herself in the mirror. Under the harsh fluorescent lighting inspecting her cuts and bruises and bandages. Her jaw aches like the devil himself and the roof of her mouth is sore and tender, inflamed like the backs of her hands. Slowly, gently, 
she eases her mouth open, wider and wider. Her jaw muscles creak like old leather. She tilts her head backwards until she can see her uvula in the mirror. For a split second, the light gleams on something smooth and shiny. Something the sickly yellow of rotten teeth. The dun bluish gray of a clouded winter sky. Does Vidania, brave explorers? For our unfortunate scholars, there were forces out there which hunted the most capable humans with ease. As above, so below. But now it is time for our final short break before we fill you in on the latest news in the world of the Simply Scary Podcast and our affiliates. Hello, folks. It's me again. I just thought I'd give you a quick tip and let you know to hit that subscribe button below, because if you do, that'll give you all the updates on all our posts and any upcoming information that might be coming out from Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and the Simply Scary Podcast. So subscribe and get the updates. And now back to our show. If you are a horror author and you like to do what we do on the Simply Scary Podcast, reach out to us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com for a free consultation on how we can help you produce audiobook adaptations of your work suitable for Audible and other related sites without bankrupting you. Disturb a brand new audience by bringing your written word to life today. If you're a writer who would like to have your story featured on the Simply Scary Podcast, visit simplyscarypodcast.com, submit a story, and we'll see if you've truly written us a nightmare to behold. You can help the Simply Scary Podcast and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights continue our epic productions while receiving access to hundreds of hours of material in the highest quality possible by becoming a patron after the show. Visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com forward slash tour to take the tour and start spending your money on something you will really enjoy. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and the Simply Scary Podcast will soon be coming to Kickstarter. We will soon be launching a campaign to fund a fully animated video series. This series will feature your favorite performers, new and fan favorite stories, plus famous talents we've hosted on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, including YouTube creators like Markiplier. 
The series will feature artwork by David Romero, famous for the Simply Scary Speed Paint series on YouTube. Your support, your support will also net you some incredible chilling tales and Simply Scary swag. So hit that subscribe button below to stay on top of the latest info as we take our channel to the next level. Now, my patient and hungry audience, it is time for our final event, where you get to be a part of our podcast. For our newest listeners, every episode we read one randomly selected review from our iTunes page during the broadcast. We also award this selected reviewer with a fantastic gift from Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. This episode's lucky winner is... Anxiety Crow. Anxiety Crow writes, This podcast is the best for scary stories. The stories and voice actors are top-notch. I wait impatiently every week for the next episode. I wish it was a daily podcast. I honestly can't get enough. Thanks a million for the feedback, Anxiety Crow, and cool screen name. If you would like to see even more episodes of our show weekly, keep your support coming, and be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, preferably five stars, to have your chance at getting your name read right here. It's that sort of encouragement that keeps us going through all hours of those simply scary, chilling, and dark nights. But Anxiety Crow, we need you to capture a screenshot of your iTunes profile page with that review pictured and send it to contact at simplyscarypodcast.com to claim your prize. Who will be next? Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, and it could very well be you. This is GM Danielson, thanking you for joining us for this episode. Remember, listeners, there's a very good reason alien reapers haven't landed yet. We're just not quite ripe enough to be harvested. We will see you next time when we show you there's nothing simple about being scared. Unless, of course, it is the Simply Scary Podcast. This is executive producer Jesse Cornett. If you like what you hear, be sure to check out more from these authors at simplyscarypodcast.com. There you can find all information regarding the show and the stories appearing here in our podcast. The Simply Scary Podcast is a production of Chilling Entertainment. The showcase is written by Jesse Cornett and Dustin Kosky and produced by Jesse Cornett. The host of the Simply Scary Podcast is GM Danielson. Original music during the show by Jesse Cornett. This broadcast was directed and created by Craig Groshek. Be sure to look for the Simply Scary Podcast on iTunes. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star review. Comments or questions? Email us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com and check our website for more information. While you're there, consider clicking on the patrons link at the top of the page to help support our show. Copyright Chilling Entertainment LLC 2016. Thanks for listening.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.